improving the conversations to build the courage to grasp the nettle and and address the problems directly. In contrast, and the reason that people don't ask is, as you say, they're following this Taylorist mindset in that there is a best way, there is a model, there's a cookbook we can apply and go and just import it. But to think that you can copy what was evolved somewhere else and just mechanically apply it is completely wrong. It completely misunderstands what's happening. It confuses structure and dynamics. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. So I am really excited to talk with you guys today. Uh, I'm here with uh, Jeffrey Frederick and Squirrel, um, and you guys have written um, an amazing book called Agile Conversations, Transform Your Conversations, Transform Your Culture. And I was lucky enough to read a sort of early version of this before it came out, and it's just fantastic. And you guys both have technology backgrounds, but I think one of the most interesting things about this book is how it applies to all sorts of conversations, regardless of what the sort of substance of the conversation is. It's a book about kind of the, the substrate of conversation rather than the, the substance in some ways. The, the skill of having a good conversation. Yes, and the fact that, I mean, even starting there, the fact that I think, 90% of 95% of us don't think of having a good conversation as a skill. So maybe one of you guys can just start with that. How did you how did you kind of come to start to write this book and start to start to think about this stuff in a, in a way that maybe that's the question. How did you start to think about this stuff in a way that made you think that there was a book in here somewhere? Well, I can start with the ancient history and then Jeffrey may have uh, uh, more from the more recent. So uh, um, a very long time ago, 10 years ago or something, uh, even more, I got into a Twitter argument with somebody, a very useless Twitter argument in the very early days of Twitter. And there's this other person named Benjamin Mitchell who came along and he made these completely off the wall statements. They were as off the wall to me as when I first read uh, about continuous integration and deployment, the idea that you could release your software 50 times a day to production and, and no one would die. And um, I, these statements were all about how the conversations could be different and how you could do this stuff called double loop learning and all these other crazy ideas that seem to treat the actions of, uh, of management, essentially, and, and we were talking about software teams, but it really applies everywhere, those actions as first class actions. And I remember when I, when I first read your, your book, Chris, and, and its predecessor, um, Normal Accidents, also the idea of treating accidents and problems as first-class uh, entities was what do you, a new what do you idea. Mean as, like, what do you mean as first-class here? That, that it's something that's worthy of study, that's worthy of paying attention to. So um, you, you probably don't pay attention to uh, selecting the right pen for taking notes. Maybe we all should, I don't know. But um, what I haven't heard, it, it was just as surprising as, as if somebody had told me, you know, your team will be 20% more effective if you get them better notebooks and pens. And, and here's the best kind, and this is what kind of ink you should use and so on. The idea of treating that as a, now, I'm not, by the way, I'm not advocating that you do do that because I haven't seen that 
level of improvement. But it, it, it was just a surprise. Maybe there is. I'd love to read somebody's book that makes that argument. But the point is that the idea that the conversation could be a unit of work, could be a unit of study, that it could be something that would be worth analyzing, was completely shocking and new to me. And I got this from these Twitter interventions from this guy, Benjamin. So I went and found him and I said, please tell me what this wacky stuff is. And he told me about this um, person he'd been studying named Chris Argeris. And what we discovered, what I discovered was that this was tremendously powerful material. And I started introducing others to it. I brought Benjamin to a conference that Jeffrey runs. And uh, Jeffrey, maybe you want to pick up the story from there. Sure. I remember uh, meeting Benjamin and you introduced me. And at the time, I was uh, just at the cusp of joining Tim, uh, where you and I worked to, or scrolling and I worked together. And this is at the conference KitCon. And I've been, my career up to the point, I've been an uh, evangelist in technology companies for many years. And so I'm uh, quite used to speaking and persuading and listening and talking to teams and coaching uh, through all kinds of changes. So especially through agile uh, transformations kind of starting in the early 2000s. Um, uh, and this is about 2011 that we were talking. So I'd had a good 10 years of working with external companies. And even before that, in my own companies, about sort of how to adopt new ideas, new practices, this is something I had, I had done in the late 90s. So I, I, I felt pretty comfortable with my ability to communicate with people. And uh, I remember talking to Benjamin, and he said, uh, he, he dropped a couple of bits of jargon on me, which I didn't recognize at the time, but it, they took me back. And he said, um, you know, you're very... I can see you're very good at advocating, but I don't hear much inquiry. Yeah. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? I, I don't understand. <laughs> so, and, and that, and that was intriguing. You know, here's something that here's a, he's, here's something, someone coming with a mental model that I have no reference for. And so I was, I was, uh, I was instantly interested. And I think the next step there was um, Squirrel then uh, saying, Hey, I'd like for all of us to keep in touch. Let's, let's do a study group together and we can talk about this arduous stuff. And that would have been about 2012. And, and from there- Nowadays, Jeffrey and I would call this a conversational dojo. We'll talk more about that, but, but um, yeah, it was the first right. conversational dojo that we ran. Yeah, that's right. So we, we started studying it together um, and, uh, and I started applying it and I found it to be tremendously helpful. Uh, and that led me to then, um, I wanted to share it with more people. And I started the, um, at the time, the Action Science Meetup since uh, changed to, uh, the London Organizational Learning Meetup, uh, where we've been running these conversational dojos for uh, once a month uh, for for many years now. Now, now moving to twice a month. So that's cool. Um, that's something that that I, I and as as you say, a lot of people show up and then they say, you know, this is really applicable to stuff outside of work. This helps me in my whole life, and uh, and that's that's uh, that's it's seen that impact it had not just for. Um, for us applying it in our uh, company, but also other people applying it in theirs and people applying it in their whole life. Uh, the idea of that this is something really powerful and something I want to share was, was uh, something that became very strong. I want to jump in and, and just have you kind of um, just take a moment to sort of thicken um, this thing that I think a lot of my listeners are probably familiar with, but a lot aren't. So if you think about my audience as like a mix of sort of software people, engineers, lawyers, consultants. I mean, I think the the kind of agile transformation is a really 
important thing for people to understand the way that that changed work. And you guys actually start your book with a description of that, which I thought was really good. But I wonder if, if one of you could, could just share the kind of 90-second version, and then maybe we can just riff off that a little bit, because I think that transformation is happening in lots of different industries now, and I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I would say uh, Agile was a, a change of, of treating knowledge work as uh, separate from factory work, as something different that needed a different uh, approach and a different mindset. And that the types of problems you're dealing with are different, and that so for the type of management and interactions you need are different. So that's kind of the, the I'd say the the very short version of it. Uh, treat knowledge work differently than factory work. And I think you you see that show up in um, a number of different ways in in software. But to step outside of software for a minute. And it's not outside of technology, of course, because technology is everywhere. But I was talking with Jeffrey a little bit about some of the work I've been doing around helping law firms and legal departments make this kind of transformation. So, you know, they are often departments that are just historically organized in a very kind of, I mean, it, it, it looks sort of like not quite a factory, but like more like a collection of artisans who are each working on the thing that's in front of them. And, and, and doing that very skillfully. And now the question is, well, you know, what are the layers of systematization that are there and how can you organize this work so that everybody can learn from it, which I think is, is kind of a new, a new thing as well. And I think both of those are very much at the, the heart of, of how you think about the, the, or how I think about the, the kind of agile transformation, at least. It's sort of like, as you said, the mental model of realizing, oh, there's a different way of working. And then this idea that, well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to systematize and learn and have that kind of relationship there. Well, I'll add one thing here, which is that the software developers in the audience are probably saying, what, what are they talking about? This is an agile development as I understand it, because we haven't said anything about stand-ups or Scrum or uh, Kanban boards or, or any of the kind of ritualized jargon that goes along with agile software development. That's kind of the point of the book, which is that um, this whole idea of, of systematizing uh, knowledge work, first of all, doesn't apply only to software and certainly doesn't apply only when you are using a certain set of rituals or you bought some certif certifications from um, some uh, organization that provides them. It, it, the uh, thing that you see that's different when you're able to treat knowledge work differently from um, industrial factory type work, which, which by the way, doesn't function very well in this way either. But when you, we stop trying to treat it as a, um, uh, as a, a, a factory job in the way that your, your lawyers are looking at it, we're going to do our, our piece, we're going to ignore everything else in the world, we're going to be isolated. When you stop doing that, first of all, you have to have better conversations, which is what the rest of the book is about. But also what you get is um, much more fluid, um, uh, a much more fluid and nimble. That's where the word agile originally came from, this idea that you could adapt to the circumstances, much more adaptable to, um, uh, uh, model that works um, more efficiently when things are changing rapidly, which is almost always the case in um, deep knowledge work. So, uh, for example, uh, we contrast in the book the uh, kind of uh, Taylorist factory that, that we started with, that both Jeffrey and I worked in, and uh, many, many years before we ever met Benjamin or started thinking about these topics, where you would get this list of requirements that was a mile long, and it 
more or less told you exactly what to do and you were just a robot kind of uh, turning spanners and pushing things and pushing buttons and, and you were supposed to fit into this larger model. That's very inflexible. That doesn't allow somebody like Google to change uh, the, the way the search engine works every single day with tens of thousands of employees. Right. And that's the crucial thing. That's the thing that people are trying to get to. Now, the place they fall down, which is what the whole rest of the book is about, is that they forget all the elements that actually make that work. And so they wind up making their um, factory work just kind of with a faster cadence. So it's like you just made the, the conveyor belt run faster, and you teach some people some kind of ways to juggle their hands and push the buttons faster. And, and that's great. That really helps. The problem is that uh, the, the expectations are so much higher that a lot of people are disappointed with their agile uh, approach with the, their agile results. And we hope they come read the book and we'll explain why why that doesn't work because they forgot to talk to people. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, just we're very much focused here about other people. And I think there's a really funny element as I hear us describing this. And and, and Chris used the word artisanal, which I think is, is perfect because it actually, if we go back, because we're talking about the, the uh, Taylorist factory model, but that was actually an innovation for what had been the old artisanal model, you know, up until the late 19th century, factories ran where with the craftsmen as artisans. And Taylorism was actually a huge leap forward in being able to scale uh, the, the, those uh, practices, be able to scale factories. And the world we live in was shaped by the massive efficiencies that came from what had been very complicated uh, tasks done by artisans and- Non-standardized. But non-centers and, and standardizing the work, breaking it simple pieces. And so we turned complicated problems into simple ones. And, and, and that's great. And if you live in that world, then, you know, fantastic. But what's changing now is, uh, and what I think happens in software is uh, in, you had this uh, increasing demand as software became more important in the 90s, that that model the, the command structure that was set up for these factories, these hierarchical vertical chains with people working separately uh, without connections to each other in their own little silos, that suddenly wasn't working well enough. And the reason is we, we hit a kind of a tipping point, which is when you start, when the, when the speed increases, you hit a tipping point where it's not just the same thing, but faster, you start having different feedback loops. Right. The, the combination of interconnectedness and speed makes a, a feedback loop where the emergent properties are different. It's the difference between, between having, you know, a bird in flight and a flock of birds. You know, the, the, you get emergent properties from a flock that you don't have from two birds. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not just more birds. It's, it's a different organism. This property of emergence. And to respond to emergence requires a, a different tool set. And so I think we have is not, it's, it's not like the old things go away. We have three things now happening at once. We, we, we need to take the things that can be made simple and make them simple and standardized. And I think that that's a big change for people who are still in a sort of artisanal world. Uh, they're they're going to have to find ways to, to, to standardize the things that can be standardized because someone else is doing that. And if they're standardizing and simplifying and automating what was your complicated value-add skill activity, you're out of a job, right? There will remain complicated work that's the domain of experts. And then there'll be emergent uh, innovation that needs to happen that's gonna be the interconnected result of teams. So it's it, all three of these things that are happening at once. And the conversations are important for us to, as teams, diagnose, understand which is which, to learn about which elements we can simplify and standardize and which ones are 
uh, going to have to remain complicated that we're going to have experts handle and which are uh, emergent properties that we need to learn about and, and, and maximize our learning. And, and I, I think to sort of build on that arc, I think that I've, I've never thought about it this way, but you know, the, the, yes, the Taylorist model very much was an innovation, but embedded in that model is the belief that you can have a manager stand in the middle of a factory floor and go around and see everything that needs to change and see what needs to be made better. It centralizes the innovation while distributing the improvements. And I think if you look at something, I mean, you know, agile is essentially the Toyota production system applied to software. I mean, I think people, uh, people might disagree with that, but that is a huge part of it. And that's what's the people in the nineties who were inventing it agree with you. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, <laughs> and what's interesting about that is what Toyota figured out is that, that you need to distribute not just the improvements, but also the innovation, that the innovation has to come from the ground up. And I think that what is challenging about, like, if you think about law or, um, or even, you know, accounting or these other kind of knowledge, like older knowledge work heavy traditions, what's really challenging is before you can even start to see the way to make the complex simple, you have to start having a different conversation. And like, in you know, in, in Taylor's time, you could see that somebody was, I mean, it's pretty obvious if you can think about how somebody should bend a wagon wheel differently or, or whatever. <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting now is there's sort of a, a, a catch-22 or kind of a chicken and an egg problem where the ability to, to source distributed innovations has to happen at the same time as the ability to kind of make those improvements. And I think it's a, it's a sort of slightly, it, it makes it a, a, a harder problem. I, I love the way you, you laid that out. Yeah, I, you're, I think you're, you're exactly right. Things, things are changing. I've, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this uh, this year in part because of um, our time at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Uh, uh, Earlier in the year, DevOps Enterprise Summit, uh, London virtual. So it was in quote unquote London, but <laughs> really online. I got exposed to the work of Dr. Steven Spear and, and his book, High Velocity Edge, and uh, where he talks about the Toyota production system and things of that nature. And uh, he talks about learning to see, that you, people need to learn to see problems. And uh, then uh, learn to swarm to solve them and the, the, the elements that go and create a learning culture. And it's such a change from uh, how people are used to working at, at where if there's a problem, um, I overcome it. <laughs> I, I just, I work around it because my, my job is to finish the task that I'm on. And, and so if something comes with my way, it's like, oh, well, that's an obstacle. Let me get past it and go on to my next job. And, and what he's talking about is, is learn, teach people to take a system view where when you encounter an obstacle in doing your work, that's like, wow, let's stop. Here's an opportunity to learn. Here's an opportunity to improve the system because our goal is to have no obstacles, not to be really proficient at working around them. And this is so different. And, and it, it reminds me quite a bit of your, of your book and the, the, the things that kind of lead to disastrous accidents when people uh, have, have ended up in systems where they have you know, a bunch of uh, accidents and, uh, and obstacles and uh, anomalies that happen all the time. And they've just become very proficient at working around them until everything lines up in just the wrong way. That alarm always goes off on Friday at four o'clock. We never pay attention to it. Don't worry about it. It's perfectly fine. Nothing, the planet's not gonna burn down. Don't worry. 
Right. Or that, I mean, or the, you know, the software testing suite that always throws a certain set of errors and everyone just knows. Oh, that. there's always some errors from that. It's all right. None of these look bad. I'm sure it is okay. Totally. Send, send the space show up anyway. But um, the, the thing that I just want to keep coming back to is, is the, the contrast between agile development as implemented and what you guys are talking about. Because I see over and over again in my consulting work how people are just following some rituals and they're getting horrible results. And there's no, there's none of this what the fancy jargon we would say is double loop learning where you step back and say, how could I make this system better? There's none of that. I mean, I just helped a client who had, I spent, helped two clients this summer actually who had had year long or longer delays where the software development team just kind of got nothing done. These are in startups. This is not in like moribund businesses where you could kind of run the organization without IT. This is tech startups and there's nothing coming out from software for, for, for a year. And nobody notices. Well, I mean, they notice and they're very unhappy, but no <laughs> one takes any action at all. And I show up and say, you know, how about if we release this software next week and there's utter panic in all directions. Um, but but it, it, that, that kind of... Um, ability to reflect and act is what's missing from a lot of agile implementations. Um, and that's what we argue uh, in the book. You can, you can really improve by improving your conversations. You're improving the conversations to build the courage to grasp the nettle and, and address the problems directly. In contrast, and the reason that people don't ask is, as you say, they're following this, uh, um, the, the Taylorist mindset in that there is a best way, there is a model, there's a cookbook we can apply and go and just import it. You know, we're going to adopt the Spotify model. We're going to do what Facebook does. We're going to do, we're going to go copy someone else. And in general, it's one thing to use these other organizations as inspiration, which I think is good just to say, look, there's different ways of doing things. But to think that you can copy what was evolved somewhere else and just mechanically apply it is completely wrong. It completely misunderstands what's happening. It confuses structure and dynamics. And this is a structure and dynamics is a bit of uh, Dr. Steven Spear jargon I picked up via Gene Kim. And he's been talking about this a lot. And, and you could just divide it this way. Structure are the things that we do. It's to say, well, we're, we're going to have a meeting every Monday to divide up our work. Dynamics are what you get, <laughs> which is what's the, what's the emergent behavior of our collaboration. And we can't, we, we grab someone else's structure, we can try it. It's going to change our dynamics, but it may not be exactly what we want. We're going to need to keep tweaking and refining with us, with our team in our context and, and keep evolving it. And so in the end, no one's structures end up exactly the same. They're all working towards the same high performance dynamics, but the actual structures that you will need in your law firm, <laughs> in your accountancy, in, in your factory, in your, they're all going to be different. And you should expect that. What the constant is the ability to interact with each other, to learn, and to say, well, what do we do now? And, and I see this a lot, and I suspect you guys too, where a, a team that might be struggling or, or uh, an organization that might be struggling will try and solve that struggle by reaching for a piece of software. Well, if we get this tool, then that will help us. If we get this, you know, if we, this, you know, law firm management system or this automation yes. platform, that, <laughs> that will be what saves us. And it's like, well, there's a, you know, there is, sure, it will just by your working on it, probably make things a little bit better, but you'll probably also see resistance and regression to the mean and kind of lots of, like, lots of countervailing forces that mean that 
you know, th this is why, this is why uh, I think at the bigger scale, these kind of change efforts are really hard because people often <laughs> don't have a mental model of them. And because uh, they, well, actually they do have a mental model. I think they just don't have a, a they don't have the right mental model oftentimes. The mental That's model right. is often like, oh, we'll start doing this practice or structure as, as you put it, we'll have this structure and then that will change things. And and there's kind of a, it's sort of, that's, yeah, that's, it's putting the outcome, the outcome first and not being sensitive to the fact that you have people, not, not little cogs in your system. That's right. They're looking at a linear system right. of cause and effect as opposed to the dynamic system where there's feedback. And you used a great phrase there, countervailing forces. Yes. The, the people, if you have a simple model, you don't need to worry about countervailing forces in, in your machine. You know, you, you're, you know, you think of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as you say, cog will move and then <laughs> corresponding cog will move. It's a, it's a very simple thing, but the idea of the feedback loops uh, and, and what effect that can have, that's where you start thinking in sort of systems terms. And that's what your, that language and mental model of uh, systems thinking is uh, necessary. If you want to improve your system, you should be thinking in terms of systems thinking, right. <laughs> if, if you, if, as opposed to a, a simple mechanical model. And, and we haven't said much about, I keep saying sorry, what's in the rest of the book, we should at least say something about that, which is uh, uh, one of the crucial things that's going to give you this feedback that's going to tell you what the um, feedback loops are that are going to let you actually make the, the, the shifts in the dynamics in your organization. The kind of unit of work, this is where we started, is a conversation. And that seems very strange. And many of <laughs> your listeners might be thinking, you know, this is back to that pen and like making the pen better. Why on, with, why on earth would making a conversation uh, better help you? what it uncovers is the conflicts that are leading to the countervailing forces, which are usually well-motivated, usually based on some information that's really helpful. So the, the lawyer in the law firm who says adopting this piece of software that's supposed to uh, help um, uh, organize my client interactions, adopting that piece of software is a terrible idea. It's gonna mess up the whole process that I have in place here, and it's really gonna annoy our customers. That's valuable information, especially the part about it's going to annoy our customers because that that lawyer probably knows something about that section of the firm and that set of customers that somebody else doesn't know who's bringing in the piece of software. And if only they had that information, they could act differently. Maybe not use the software, maybe use it differently, maybe not use it for those customers. But that information is going to remain locked in that person's head unless you improve the conversation. And that's why we go through a, a, a whole set of techniques, which we won't have time for here. That, um, the basic one of which involves taking a piece of paper, folding it in half, and writing on one side what you were thinking and the other side what you actually said. And it's remarkably powerful for discovering all that kind of hidden information that was in your head and you didn't share it. And if you're doing that, then there's not much hope that the other person is going to do it. And if that doesn't happen, then you won't have the conflict that would help you understand what's going on. So that's the kind of brief summary of, um, of um, a book that uh, you know, 200 pages and, and lots of exercises uh, help you to actually get to the point where you can reduce fear, uh, increase trust, um, make better commitments and so on. Um, and, and that's what we work on. And that's what we think the, um, uh, the, the unique thing is that, that you can do to actually address these problems because we're outlining the problems. What's the solution? We claim it's having better conversations so you increase conflict productively. And I think your your book is great in part because it is so practical. It's very, I mean, it is really, 
exercise driven and and in kind of a very I think maybe I'll say escalates things in a very insightful way like they're sort of um, a small commitment to try things and then you you get a uh, I think you see a lot of benefit from that and so I wonder if you could sort of you mentioned a couple of them but but you know choose maybe a, a let's let's maybe thicken one of these lines a little bit what's what's a a part of a conversation that can be uh underappreciated that that you have a technique for for drawing out and just like maybe maybe take us through a sort of um richer example of that so people can get a sense of things did you want to do that jeffrey or should i either one's fine Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with an example. So it, the, you know, what I can consider the foundational technique, and this is something we introduce in literally chapter two, because it is so foundational. Um, we describe how to uh, do uh, this sort of case study format where you record your conversation. We, we introduce a model called the four R's. So you're going to uh, record the conversation. You're going to revise on the basis of some tool. Uh, uh, so you, you reflect on it and this is some tool to and then and then revise uh, and then you'll practice the role play but you'll have to also repeat this probably several times to get something you like and in the role play it's helpful to do role reversal so there's six four r's um but the, <laughs> these, you have these you have this these these uh these six fours and that's the model we're going to take you throughout the whole book and in the case of here the important part we've stressed is recording putting stuff on paper, so you put down a conversation that you you know, either are afraid of or you have had, and that's where we start with the technique is just to ask the question of, are you being transparent, and are you being curious, and this is this is foundational because everyone believes that they are, and it goes back to I used the phrase earlier about learning to see. It's it's in this chapter we say we, we say look this is a tool we're giving you to learn how to see how you're actually behaving in these conversations and how it's different than what you think. And uh, uh, so people believe already that they're being transparent. They believe they're already sharing what they know. They believe they're sharing their reasoning, but they're not. They, and they, they believe they're curious about what other people have to say, but they're not. And this, you, you get the evidence and then people have this aha moment. Oh, oh my God, I was in this meeting and we were discussing uh, uh, you know, it's decision we had to make on this project. And uh, I thought I was being curious and transparent, but it wasn't, I was just advocating. I was just playing to win. I was just arguing my side. I came to the meeting know knowing what I thought we should do. And I left believing that that's what we should do. And in the, in the, in the meeting, I argued that's what we should do. And, and, and nothing, but nothing really advanced. Nothing came out of the meeting. Everyone like me, came with their own ideas and left with their ideas unchanged. Uh, uh, that interaction is, is uh, uh, the kind of uh, frustrating interaction that we ask people to reflect on and to learn how they're contributing to. So, okay. um, okay. Uh, so, so that's, that, that's the, the kind of a, a core, uh, a, a, a core um, uh, type of interaction that we ask people to, to start with. And to, to illustrate um, application of a, um, uh, of a technique that you can then learn using the four R's, the six four R's that Jeffrey just talked about, uh, we'd uh, uh, point the most, the kind of most accessible one, the one that we talk about first in the book, is called the ladder of inference. 
and that's a method of um, exactly as Jeffrey described, learning about someone else's reasoning or sharing your own in a very structured way that gives surprising results. So for example, if I wanted to collaborate with one of those folks in the law firm and I was observing that they were uh, resistant, then I might uh, not come in saying, I'm gonna try to convince you to use the software. I might come in with a structured list of questions and I'd be ascending the ladder of inference. And as I was ascending that ladder, I would be learning um, what, what was their, uh, what are they observing? What's the meaning of that for them? What's the conclusion they're drawing from that? What assumptions does that lead to? What beliefs does that lead to? And if I can get to all of those, almost always, somewhere along that chain of going from what they observe to what they're doing, they observe, we're bringing in the new software, they're acting by saying, I'm not gonna use it. I'm gonna learn something that's surprising, like it's gonna annoy the customers. And if you have a structured way of approaching that and you've practiced it with role plays and conversational dojos and using the exercises that we have in the book, it's amazing how much productive conflict you can have. It doesn't mean you're gonna agree. You might not agree. This actually will not annoy these customers. I've talked to all of these customers. I think this person is wrong. But understanding their reasoning almost always gives you some new piece of information that you can then use um, productively and leads to a helpful conflict, which is there anyway. So the people are already going to the meeting, they're already starting with their ideas, they're already following their chains of reasoning. The problem is it's just hidden from you. Well, and in, and in this hypothetical, I think you can see lots of ways that something like this can resolve. And, and again, this is what I love, you know, if you can make the shift from wanting to be right to wanting to be curious, that is just a, a foundational shift. It's very hard to do, uh, not to pick on lawyers, but particularly if you're a lawyer who has, your whole job is advocacy in some context, right? And so <laughs> you, you're sort of, you're very well trained in that. But I think there's a real something embedded in what you said, Squirrel, which is you're open to whatever the conclusion is, right? And that's, I think, an important part of it. If, if Including this software is the wrong one. Thank heavens I learned that exactly. before I implemented it that this was a bad idea and I shouldn't have introduced it. Thanks so thank much God, for telling thank me. Thank God we learned now instead of after we had invested $2 million in rolling it out and training people. Yep. Uh, and I think that, but what it does is it lets people, one of the ways I think about this too is it, it sort of um, lets people talk in a way that has less emotional valence. So you're not arguing, you're not saying, well, this software's terrible, you don't understand it. It's like, here's what I see, here's how I think my customer, my clients are going to react to having this be imposed on them. But, but I, I would say that the emotions are an extremely important data point. So one of the important yes. things to inquire about and to share is the emotional signal. So what I wouldn't want people to walk away from this thinking is, oh, here's a way I can have less conflict and I'll have fewer emotions in the workplace. And thank heavens, we can just be rational at last. That's the opposite <laughs> of the message. They got that from the book. They read the wrong book. Um, so <laughs> read it again, because the, the message is the emotions are important and they influence the thinking and they help you to have the productive conflict if you share them. Yeah. If you don't, and we have this a lot in England where, where and I'm sure other cultures too, but it's particularly got this English reserve where people don't want to rock the boat and then they, they just say, oh, possibly, you know, there could be a minor problem with the thing, you're, which is actually, you're an idiot. I can't believe you're uh, proposing this. Where on earth, did, what you know, boat did you get off of? If that's their thinking, there's, there's a more productive um, uh, middle road there where you can share, I really think this is a dumb idea. Now I'm willing to learn that I'm missing something. 
but I'm coming in here thinking this doesn't make any sense. So you're going to have to help me understand why this software annoys the customers, because I think it would be great for them. But can you tell me what's the reasoning? What did you see? How did you come to that conclusion? And so on. Um, if you can have that productive conflict, including your emotions about it and your opinions about it, you're going to get a lot further. So uh, I would certainly not remove the emotions. I'm often coaching people to bring in their emotions much more. And they find yes. that very threatening and terrifying. I, I, I agree. And I'm doing, I'm doing it too. And, um, you know, I work with groups and then the, when the F word comes up and by that, I mean the word feelings, um, it can be, <laughs> it can get really challenging all of a sudden. And, uh, but what I, what I, and I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to, to sort of parse this through. Cause I think you're right. But I think, um, I think it's sort of, uh, being sensitive to the emotions, but also realizing that that there is a way to that when they're there, it indicates that something else is going on. And I think the just like you you just said, and you know, the emotions of like you guys are idiots. I can't believe you're going to make make us use this. Below that is a belief that is probably less valenced, and it's hard to get good data. I mean you guys are idiots is good data, but it's hard to know what to do with that. And so I think kind of drilling, you're sort of stepping down the ladder of inference to, oh, what are you actually observing here? That's where I think it's, it's exact, you're exactly right. It's like the emotions are, are part of the whole suite of activities. Jeffrey, you're smiling. Uh, yeah, I love, I love Jeffrey's emotional valence. And it goes, what, it, what I can see you're talking about is um, we make it a big distinction between unproductive conflict between people and productive conflict between ideas. <laughs> so you're an idiot would be an example of the first one. Exactly. And this would really annoy our customers as an example of the second. And, and, and people, I think, are properly afraid of unproductive conflict between people. And they're worried about emotions becoming you're idiots and, and you know, I can't believe you would do this and so on. And as a result, you, you end up with one or two types of things typically happen in a group. Either like they don't really care about each other. They don't have mutual trust and respect. And so they just out, outright war erupts. At least, you know, in the US, you'll have this. You, people will be like, you're an idiot. I can't believe that you're going to make us do this. Do you have any idea the impact we have? No, you don't because you're dumb. Right? And they're like, oh right. my God. So that... So, so you can have that kind of outright warfare, or maybe it's more clandestine, but it's still warfare. You know, back channel discussions. Look, I can't believe you put that idiot in charge of this rollout. You're going to sink the firm. Uh, but it's it is it is war, whether whether in the surface or not. The alternative is uh, is just as bad and possibly even worse, which is groupthink, which is the outcome that happens when people are too afraid of conflict to say what they see, what they believe. And so this is the person who does see looming disaster and doesn't say anything. You know, either, well, you know, you know, Bob's really hot on this and there's no way for me to bring this up without there being conflict. And then there's going to be an argument and, you know, a bunch of politics and backstab. I don't want any part of that. Uh, and so therefore I'm going to opt out. And that's a tremendous loss for the organization. Right. And, and so it kind of, you're, you have a loss kind of either way. If, if the default assumption people have is that conflict will be personalized and, and that's normal in environments that lack psychological safety, right? Psychological safety being the belief that we're all valuing the joint outcome that, and, and my contribution, my sharing, my view will be valued even if people disagree.
it will be interpreted, any, any, anything I raise will be interpreted as a, a contribution towards seeking the best possible outcome. People would like to have that psychological safety. It's the top you know, characteristic of high-performing teams. You know, when at Google, they, they did a, uh, I believe this was Project Aristotle, when they went and looked for the, the, the traits of the highest-performing teams, the number one factor was psychological safety. Right. Uh, and and that's and the reason that it's so powerful is it allows people to contribute what they know, because even if even if they have emotions like I'm afraid this is not going to work, <laughs> I'm I'm worried that this is going to cause us to lose clients, they are confident they won't be judged. So the result is the group gets more information, right, and can make better decisions. Does anyone care about better decisions? I, I know I do, which is what got me excited about this material in the first place is that it could lead to, to more uh, constructive collaboration, more information generation, more options, and better decisions. And just to go back to uh, uh, the kind of the, the negative side of that. So what happens when you're not making good decisions? One of my favorite uh, psycho psychology experience, which has been well replicated, unlike some uh, that we cite in the book, is um, the one, and I can't remember the, the experimenters' names, but um, it's the smoke experiment. And so they they had um, they had uh, um, folks sit in a room, and uh, they uh, had smoke come in a, a ventilator uh, in the, into the room. So the room gets pretty full of smoke, and people start choking and so on. No one goes and gets help. If you put somebody in the room alone. They don't. Uh, they they don't have any hesitancy. They go and get out of the room. They get help. They they take action. If you're in a room with other people, the whole group takes very slow action. So you can uh, and and uh, one of the memorable ways Jeffrey put that to me when he was first introducing to me is people would rather die in a fire than have a conflict. And and the idea of uh, having a conflict is terrifying uh, when you're sat in that room filling out a questionnaire or whatever distracting task the psychologist has given you. And you're thinking, gosh, no one else seems to be doing anything. Must be okay. It seems normal. <clears throat> I'm having trouble re breathing, but it must be okay. And uh, it's, it's a, a, a dangerous, very, and it's exactly this sort of thing that leads to all the um, kind of accidents in your book, Chris, that um, uh, people are complacent in, in a very dangerous way when they're surrounded by a group who they think are uh, thinking the same way as them. And it's too frightening for them to stand up and say, smoke in here. And and I think that you've hit on something because it, it's not. I mean, conflict is almost too strong a word, right? It's it's really we ha we have a fear of non-conforming, right? No one was in that room advocating to stay in the smoke, right? It's <laughs> it's the 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 step the fear of, of embarrassment, right? Exactly the fear of. I mean, and and that's what I think is interesting about this stuff that that you know it is. Um, I wrote a, a little blog post recently about gathering input from your team. And I think what's so interesting is that one of the things that kills psychological safety that, that really makes it go away is not just not acting on people's suggestions, right? If people take the interpersonal risk to share and you don't do anything with it, then that's... Um, like that's basically just as bad as like yelling at them, right? At least yelling at them, you're kind of engaging with them. Um, and I am not advocating management by yelling, but it's a, what I think is interesting. And I think is as a, as a uh, human, it's, it's easy to forget is that so many of our actions are 
motivated as a manager, it's as a leader, it's hard to remember this. But so many of our actions are motivated by not wanting to stand out by by not being nonconformist. And, and that's when you get these, these kind of incredibly, um, you know, these agreements where groups have basically come together and said, well, that's a thing we don't talk about. And that's all very implicit. And what I love about what you guys do is it's making that uh, making that more explicit and putting some some tools and some scaffolding on it to really help people not just think about it differently, but but also grow and practice and improve and change. Yeah, that's that's right. And we we had a phrase from uh, Roger Schwartz, which is discuss the undiscussable. Uh, um, right. which is exactly that. And it, he has a, um, a white paper called Smart Behaviors for Smarter Teams, where he lays out eight principles. And, and one of them, rule eight, is discussing discussable. We introduced that uh, at Tim, and, and that was once we became part of the culture, it was, it actually was, it had a huge impact on exactly what you're saying about the non-conformance. And, and now, before I say this, because understand, a non-conforming idea is the most valuable idea. It's the one that adds the most information content. <laughs> it's sort of, if you have, if you have, you know, seven people and six of them all think the same way, that's the one who is seventh is adding the most unique value. <laughs> you could, you could, you could lose any one of the other six and you haven't really lost anything, but you lose that one person, you've lost half of your ideas. That's, that's, that's huge. The non-conforming ones are, are, are extra valuable. Um, and, but as you say, our fear of embarrassment, because we are primates and for primates, social status is the most important characteristic. Um, it, uh, so uh, that, that people for, for not wanting to stand out won't share the information. Giving people, setting the, the norm and saying, we have a culture where we expect people to contribute their unique ideas, the discussed and discussable. And in fact, you can make it now, you are following the norm when you can say, hey, look, in the spirit of rule eight, <laughs> I know no one else thinks this way, but I just wanna share this, this thing. And, and that can be like magic and it can transform things. I, I was in a, a meeting not long ago where someone said, look, in the spirit of rule eight, I'm bored. <laughs> You know, this is kind of boring. I don't yeah. think this is going anywhere. Why is that? Why are people not talking? And you know what? From that point, it was not boring anymore. And there was a lot more, a lot more information came out in the in the next 30 minutes that came out in the prior 30 minutes. And, and it really helped them by having the structure in place to say, among the values that we espouse, among that we say are, that are valuable to us is this idea of sharing what we're thinking and sharing what we're feeling. So it gave someone like this, this badge they could hold up and say, look, I am following the social norms, even though I'm saying something that no one else is saying. That's such a great, such a great example and such a great way of putting it. When I think about my own business, and I wonder if this will resonate with, with you two and the, the kind of consulting side of things you do. Um, and when I think about the lawyers it's smaller firms or solo practices that i that i coach one of the the incredibly powerful things about being in in charge of your own business is that you are both like you are the only thing that stands in your way of breakout success right and that's that's both incredible but also really scary and 
I think when you think about what I think is interesting and in, in a learning that for me I've come to in the past year or so is that I was just as afraid of success as I was of failure uh, in some in some deep way that being successful is also an interpersonal risk, right? It's, it is also a way of non-conforming. And I don't mean just making money. I mean, sort of designing and, and kind of living the life that you want. That's a mix of interesting work. And, you know, for me, time and engagement with kids, engagement with my hobbies and that, that kind of well-balanced life, you know, that is countercultural from the, the kind of, I think, conversation that we often have as, just humans coming together. It's like, Oh, how are you doing? Oh God, I'm so tired and overwhelmed. And it's like, Oh yeah, in, in, it's, in, it's interesting. Um, but I, I think there's something specific in that too, that when I think about building one's own practice, it's if you are framing things as, and this is again, this kind of, this sort of scaffolding, what I've seen help myself a lot and what I've seen help the, the clients I work with a lot is you're not framing things as this is the way that it's going, this is the way it's going to work, but you have this, this, this double loop learning that is, oh, here's an experiment I'm going to run. Here's the thing I'm going to try. And that way, whatever the outcome is, it's no longer a, a threat to your identity. Now it's just oh, this is the scaffolding I work in. Oh, this worked well, this didn't work well. Here's what I learned. And I think that that's a, a, a shift that just acknowledging something as the norm greatly changes behavior. And I've, I've seen that for myself and, and the people I work with. So I love that, you, um, that you've managed to kind of bring that, bring that scaffolding in. That's really cool. Yeah, I love that idea of, of, of uh, framing for experiment uh, uh, that um, actually fits very well with uh, Amy Evanson of Psychological yes. Safety fame. In her book, Teaming, uh, she talked about that as far as um, the roles of leadership in framing for learning to make it okay for people to experiment. And, I, and I, it's certainly true. I agree with you that in a sort of independent practice, we have to be able to do that for ourselves. Right. Uh, and uh, that that can be uh, very challenging, I think, to uh, when, when if you feel like, well, I've, I'm going to do this thing and it has to work. <laughs> I have to be right. Um, that's you know, good good luck with that. You're, even if you could be right, you're going to you're going to quickly exhaust the, your limits of competence. Uh, you know, uh, what happens if you get to novel situations, which I think it's, it kind of ties us back to the overall you know driver that we started at the beginning. What's what's driving this change and need for transformation in so many places is uh, novel circumstances, the, the, the rate of change uh, being uh, higher and people needing to learn to respond differently. Yeah, and, and, and I think there's, there's another thing that I think is an easy mistake to make in this, and I, and I make it myself too, but, but when, you, when you sort of reflected it back on to me about we as a, the leaders of our own companies you know, have to learn this, or, or, but it's also true that Sometimes we think about psychological safety as a as a question of people at the operator level, but it's actually it's actually a team dynamic. It's actually a dynamic that exists on many different levels. And I was talking with um, with Amy Edmondson and one of her former students, who's now a professor, um, Jim Dietert. And one of the really interesting things about some of the research Jim does on when people and when and why people don't speak up is that 
there's this side of naive model that I think a lot of us have that like, well, I can't speak up now, but once I get into the boss's chair or once I'm a VP <laughs> or once I'm, you know, then I'll speak up. And, and actually that's not true. What happens is your kind of reasons for not speaking up change, but the behavior doesn't change. And, and so it's it, just, there is this way that this is such a, um, this, this path of getting better at this, what I love is it, what I love about your work is that it provides the scaffolding to kind of take some of the ego threat out of it. And then I think in tandem with that, it's really helpful for people to work, as I know you guys do, one-on-one with somebody who is a coach who is helping them like, well, see what's the, what's, what are the inner stories that they have that they are not even aware of that they can then kind of share and articulate and then do kind of some of the same work that they're doing in their conversations with themselves like oh this is the kind of work i have to do or you know here's the this is the kind of success i'm limited to these these kinds of things which i think often show up very implicitly yeah that's 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 great i, I love that that connection because you're, you're you're right it is it ends up being the same kind of dialogue <laughs> and uh, uh it, even though the dialogue is with yourself uh, uh rather than others sometimes it actually does show up in your dialogue with others your thoughts about yourself show up in in, in li- you're limiting what you're allowing yourself to do and, and say in the conversation and i and i by the way i really love that idea that people think that oh i'll i'll be able to behave and be my authentic self when this future event happens. Uh, I, I, I've not, I've not, that's not been my experience. They just, they move from one uh, mask and one role to another. Uh, yeah. As Gron and I have talked before about when people move into management, they often um, don't know how to behave. Their, their image of what a manager is, they get from TV and movies. And so that becomes how they behave. That's their role model is what they've seen in media. And, uh, but unfortunately, the, the, the tragedy here is that what you see in media is designed to create drama. It's, it's bad <laughs> interaction that we see uh, modeled for us. And, uh, and so what's prepared people to show up and be authentic, to, to be able to actually share with people what they're thinking and feeling, to be honest with others, to be honest with themselves. That's uh, it, it's a different kind of work and and what I the, the position for a book is this can be um, that people n- know that they want change, they know they want a better culture, they know they're frustrated, and they they have seen that just adopting the practices, just doing the cargo cult thing, isn't getting them where they want to go. Right. And so 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 it's like now and we're like here well there's a way. And it it comes from learning how to see, and what the the trick is, and and it and I explain this to people very often. Show up in the meetup. I said, okay, you you said you're coming here for the conversational dojo, but I said what you're going to learn about is what you say, but what that reflects is how you think. What you're really learning about is yourself. So you should expect this to be difficult, emotional work. And uh, and there's a, sometimes we'll say hashtag learning is horrible. And, and, and sometimes people object to that. They're like, oh, but I love to learn. So, now this is different because this is learning about yourself. Right. And, and that when you learn that you're not the person that you thought you were, that you believed you were, that you aspired to be, that's painful. It's, it's also liberating. It's, it's the seed of change. You can now be, once you learn that, once you're learning to see your true self, you can be different. Because underneath this, the reason that we 
aren't behaving differently is we can't see it. It's our cognitive biases blind us to what's happening. If we could see better what was happening, we would behave differently. And I just think it's, it's just black and white. We, we are stuck in these places where our cognitive biases blind us, where we can see clearly we behave differently. And so we're, this is a practice in the book about learning to see in those places where normally we're blind. Maybe we should close with this idea of a, of a conversational dojo. I, I don't know. We could probably talk for the next three hours. I don't know how long Chris has. <laughs> I, I was just about to, to shift to the, the, what we could learn about the conversational dojo. Oh, that's great. Well, um, the, the dojo, of course, many listeners will know from either from martial arts or from software dojos where people learn how to uh, build code uh, effectively and, and learn particular skills by repeating them. A conversational dojo is what Jeffrey and I started with and when we first met Benjamin and we started learning about uh, how to apply these techniques to develop the six four R's and all the other methods. You get together with a group of other people, you fold pieces of paper in half and write on them your conversations in a structured way. You uh, come to uh, investigate those in, um, uh, and, and look to improve them and you role play them and this is not fun. You don't leave thinking, boy, I'm wonderful. This is super. I'm, I'm a great person. You leave thinking, gosh, I really have a lot more to do. But that's valuable learning to same ways you might be sore after a martial arts session. Um, and we have a whole mechanism for learning how to do this, a downloadable uh, uh, kit for uh, what goes into a dojo, how to run one, uh, who should come, what sorts of things you should do. So uh, if folks are interested in exploring this further, they can obviously read our book, but they can also go and try it. If, if you prefer experiencing it, go hold a conversational dojo. You'll be astonished at what you learn. And you guys run these also twice a month in in London, which means online. Is that right, Jeffrey? Virtual, yeah. So anybody can come. Yep, that's right. So maybe we can get a link to that too, in case uh, people are are interested. You can find pretty much all of this on conversationaltransformation.com, which is the website where we have all the stuff related to the book. Yeah, there's and specific items page. for the dojo yeah. and so on. We'll, we'll make sure to give those to Chris so he can share that's them right. appropriately in show notes and elsewhere. Great. This has been really fun. Um, so we've got the the link to the book, which we'll of course include. But where can people find you guys if they want to? to Conversationaltransformation.com. That's the best place. Agileconversations.com also works. We didn't get it by the time the book went to press, so uh, we we managed to buy that off somebody later. So uh, <laughs> both agileconversations.com and conversationaltransformation.com will both work and, and find us. Or if you just type. Uh, 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 actual conversations or conversational dojo into your favorite search engine. We're uh, near the top. And on Twitter and LinkedIn. Great. And our, we haven't even mentioned our podcast, which has 140 episodes or something that by now. So all of these are linked at conversationaltransformation.com. And I can, I can commend your podcast to people. Um, it's really, it's, it's lovely. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys about this. Um, you know, my needs are to um, kind of have broad impact in the world and and have connection with people. And I have loved that uh, in our global world today, the fact that we've only met once and you guys are, are far away in London, but we can still get together and, and do stuff by this. So this has really kind of met those needs for me. So, so thank you. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank Thanks for having us, Chris. Good, stimulating conversation as always. Well, thank you guys. 
Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.